Tonight's talk is about celebrating gratitude. The Buddha taught that there are two types of rare and precious human beings in this world. One who is able to show kindness and one who is able to appreciate kindness being shown to them in the past or in the present. I think of gratitude or this genuine appreciation of kindness shown to us as one of the most important spiritual emotions. The experience of gratitude is like the completion of any experience of understanding whether it's the understanding of the interconnectedness of all of life or whether it's the understanding of how freedom occurs whenever we don't identify with what's happening in our moment-to-moment experience. One of the greatest blessings in life, even though life isn't easy, is when we're able to expand beyond this uh, sense of being a separate I, of being a separate alienated person or self. In the Buddhist cosmology, there are 31 planes of existence, and human beings are considered to be just a speck. We're just a speck in this great universe. Human beings are fifth from the bottom (laughs) out of 31 planes. Sometimes it's helpful to just get this perspective. If you're wondering why it's hard on this plane of existence, we're not considered very developed here. (laughs) There's only four planes below us. including the animals. Six, there's supposed to be six celestial um, uh, realms of existence of devas, and then 20 of Brahma's gods. So just remember, you know, to keep in mind this perspective. Um, The climax of gratitude are the moments when we're able to feel totally related to all beings in all planes of existence in the universe. The more we can understand and appreciate the importance of gratitude in our life, whether we're having an easy time or whether we're having a difficult time, the more happiness and meaning and purpose will grow out of the experience of gratefulness. Gratitude usually happens out of an experience of freedom. Tomorrow is uh, an American holiday called Thanksgiving. It's nice to be able to reflect on thankfulness or gratefulness um, 
before we move into this holiday, this is a ritual that we learned from the Native people here. The Native people um, celebrated Thanksgiving as a way to mark how important the experience of gratitude is. And the holiday or ritual grew out of a relationship of dependence uh, with the land, a dependence of survival with all the different plants, animals um, that the people depended on. So what appears on our plates tomorrow and in most people's homes, whether it's pumpkin or beans or squash or chestnuts, corn, blueberries, cranberries, and even potatoes, which are from Peru, and then not here but in other places, turkeys, uh, these are all native foods. The white people who came here uh, and the native people who lived here were supposedly living here at least 10,000 years before uh, the Westerners moved from Europe here, um, adapted for their survival many of the ways of life that the native people had including this holiday. The holiday is marking after the harvest. It's giving thanks for what has been given us. It's giving thanks for what sustains us, what nourishes us. And there's a very deep meaning in this celebration of thanks because each moment of our life is given to us. Life is given. To be able to understand that on deeper and deeper levels is the path of the practice. What can be quite dismaying or shocking is how little gratitude that most people experience in this country for what we learned from the Native people in those early years. Especially, probably, that we don't really understand the meaning of the holiday we adapted itself, never mind what helped us survive. About a week ago, it might be more than that, but about a week ago I went to a, a powwow, a local powwow here, I am from this area, and I never, um, in my life here, in 40, almost 43 years, I've never seen a group of local Native people gather in the East um, for a celebration, which is amazing, really. And the local people here were called Nipmuc Indians. They were called the freshwater people. And they were called the freshwater people because they lived by the lakes and the ponds and the streams. They had to be invisible here in this part of the world 
uh, to survive. When I was young, I knew a, a man named Indian Joe that I loved a lot, but he was uh, alone and was quite invisible. So when I saw these people dancing, and it took a lot of courage for them to do that. They came out and had people uh, watch them, and they'd never done it before. It hit me on a level that it's very hard to describe, but just tears just started coming out. You know, tears of gratitude, but also the grief of what we've lost as a people, as, as, as races, what we've lost um, through the arrogance of our race. So the appearance again, that it's safe for these people to appear and to dance, even here, is, is a wonderful gift to us all. Lucky enough for us, um, there are ancestral spirits here that affect us whether we know it or not. There's a great, um, great psychologist, Carl Jung, who said that a race of people can never conquer another race of people because the spirits of those supposedly conquered will enter the hearts of the children of those who did the conquering when the children are born. Do you need that repeated? <laughs> a race of people can never conquer another race of people because the spirits of those who supposedly conquered will enter the hearts of the children of those who did the conquering when their children are born. This is quite a powerful thing to say. He's referring to Native people all over the planet, not just here. We're affected by Native people much more than we realize. I have a wonderful, it's probably not that pleasant a memory, but when I was really young, so young that my father had to hold me on his shoulder, uh, he brought me to a huge fire of a big mansion in the town next to where I grew up in, in Wayland, Massachusetts. Uh, and when the, this whole place was burning, I just had this deep feeling of something being really wrong with the place that we were there, not just the fire, but I could feel these spirits there when I was really young. And when I grew older, when I was about 12, this place was um, bulldozed for development, and it turned out to be a burial ground of the Native people here. And there's so many ways in which um, their, their presence here, there's many places right around here where there are grinding stones from the people who lived here. Um, and for me, growing up quite wild and through what you might call neglect, I spent much time outside and really felt the spirits of the land here, the ancestral spirits, 
and felt grateful to them for taking care of me, for protecting me. I learned from them that no matter how painful life can be, that you can go out in nature and if you wait long enough, you can feel a deep harmony and feel a sense of belonging and a sense of interbeing. In the religious teachings of most of the Native people in America, there's a deep appreciation for silence, for stillness, for solitude, for simplicity, for ceremony and vision. There are more than 300 Native American tribes in America, and we have much to learn from them if we uh, can let go of our conceit. What I'm most struck by in um, these Native American tribes is the valuing of gratitude or thankfulness as uh, the sign of maturity in these traditions. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. And this gratitude or appreciation of gratitude itself is based on this very profound understanding of interdependence of life, that we're really not these alienated, separate selves wandering around. We really share everything profoundly. Every breath we take, every mouthful of food we eat, every step we take, um, if we're aware, if we're mindful, we'll realize that we're utterly, completely connected with all of life, that we're totally dependent on life for our well-being. And this, this makes us very vulnerable, but interdependence is a fundamental law of life, of nature. The Lakota Sioux have a great creation myth. And then in their stories, in their creation stories, each person on their spiritual journey is tested tested a lot for their generosity and for their kindness. And in these tests, what happens is that a person will start to know who is wise and who is a trickster. And this is an important teaching for all of us. In Hawaii, there's such a profound celebration of life itself. And, uh, and the celebration comes out of the understanding that life is dependent on giving, that there's this incredible universal give and take of life, reciprocity, everyone helping each other, everything is give and take. One of the things that can be interesting to explore is whether it's easier, easier for us to be generous or to receive. 
Because often in the giving, there still can be some control. But to really genuinely receive, we have to really let go of control. There has to be an opening. To be able to say thank you requires this deep letting go of control. Gratefulness is a measure of our awakeness then, of our aliveness. There's a kind of stupid movie that Steve Martin is in called The Jerk. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, at the end of it, uh, the person in the movie called The Jerk is having a huge fight with his wife. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie uh, where there, he's kind of screaming at his wife. He's leaving her and he's saying, I don't need you. I don't need anything. And on his way out of the house, he just picks up anything. I don't need you. All I need is this lamp. <laughs> and then he starts walking out, and then he'll, she'll say, I don't need you either. <laughs> so, I don't need you either. I, all I need is this, these matches. And so all the way out of the house, they're doing this thing where I don't need you. All I need, and he, he starts just, he'll just grab anything. All I need is this book. <laughs> and he just walks out of the house carrying all, all of this stuff. It's great. And if you look at the ways in which we act so much of the time, we act like that. You know, we don't really get (laughs) how much we need. And if you look at our life here, it's so simple. And yet if you added up what you needed to get through the day, it's a lot. Our survival, just in a day of a really simple life here, requires receiving an enormous amount toothpaste, water, hairbrush. Just start adding it up, what we really need. But do we really pay attention to that and receive it? It's a gift. We're receiving a gift of life over and over, but we forget to pay attention. Unfortunately, aging doesn't guarantee maturity in this world. It would be so much easier if aging did guarantee that. I see uh, spiritual maturity as Mm, the times when we have these moments of gratitude, genuine gratitude, one of the reasons that I really appreciate being on retreat is that I have so much more time to pay attention to what I'm receiving. I feel those moments when, you know those moments when you really get it and you let go of control and really do receive the gift of life. It's powerful because it brings so much happiness. We've touched the truth of this interbeing. 
what is it that prevents us from experiencing this openness of heart, of gratitude? Conceit, which the Buddha taught, um, implies a lack of appreciation. It's a lack of graciousness. Conceit is very painful because we're feeling separate. It's not the truth of things, of interbeing. And just to go over what he taught, um, the eighth army of Mara is feeling worthless, feeling like we're no good. It's any way in which we deprecate ourselves, or put ourselves down, or feel worthless. The ninth um, army of Mara is the desire for gain, or reverence, or fame. This is considered conceit. And the last form of conceit that the Buddha taught was feeling more important than others, putting others down. And he included in this stubbornness. It's, a, it's such a complete description, that range of feeling worthless or no good to putting others down and feeling um, superior. There was a teacher who came here um, in 1978 named Tangpula Sayadaw. He was a forest monk from northern Burma. And he was said to have spent, at that point, 33 years in a cave. He was um, a very powerful teacher. And one of the things he had said to me that has stayed with me, because it was such simple advice, was to keep my mind like water, to not have my mind be like a rock, but to have it be like water. And I've come to understand this teaching on deeper and deeper levels. But just to, when you think of a rock and how heavy and solid it is, and how light and flowing water is, there's a real sense of um, when we let go of identifying with any experience of me or mine or I, there'll be a feeling of fluidity the mindfulness practice or the vipassana practice itself is meant to be uh, a fluidity of, in- of attention that just flows with moment-to-moment change. Hence, like to keep the attention like water, that it, it can move with life as it's moving. The opposite of, of this rock-like identification is humility. Humility has that sense of water, uh, buoyancy, fluidity. The Buddha taught that it's only after overcoming conceit, the feeling that I'm equal or I'm worse than, or I'm better than, it's only after overcoming these three ways of perceiving that we've put an end to suffering, that we've put a total end to suffering. Because all of these feeling better than, equal than, worse than, 
are all comparing. It's comparing a separate self with another separate self. And it's considered madness by the Buddha. Upandita said that when we really see this mind and body clearly, there's no possibility for conceit. With the deepest understanding, we see that we're not separate. So there's no possibility for believing any kind of comparison. I came across a quotation by Lauren Isley today about water. It's from the firmament of time. Um, He said, if there is magic on this planet, it is contained in water. Remember, keep a mind like water. Its substance reaches everywhere. It moves under the poles and wanders thinly in the heights of air. It can assume exquisite perfection in a snowflake or strip the living to a single shining bone cast up by the sea. Water is very powerful. It's very strong, but it's fluid. This mind or attention that isn't identifying this water-like quality um, is really important in terms of finding a balance between this inflation or deflation, this self-condemning or self-importance that happens when we're comparing ourselves with others. The mind, like water, will bring us the strength um, to discover gratitude in ourselves. And this helps balance out any conceit or arrogance. Conceit is any self-referencing. And one of the characteristics of conceit is ingratitude, thanklessness. It's when we can't genuinely appreciate anything that we've received, any kindness that's been shown to us. When we can't feel grateful, we tend to feel very needy. We need to control. Um, And this need to control will make us feel much more disconnected from life because it The truth of life is that it's out of control, and it's flowing. And the need to identify, contract, stop the flow of life, whether it's with aversion or attachment, isn't the truth. So it's very painful. The way in which we get involved in self-pity or self-glory, which I'm sure you've experienced both tasting both the the pity and the specialness, these masquerade for a very deep insecurity. The gratitude is the antidote for that insecurity.
the first type of rare and precious human being in this fifth plane of existence is the benefactor, someone who shows us kindness. And it's possible to reflect on anyone who's shown us kindness. If this hasn't happened for us or hasn't happened for us much, there will be more feeling of disconnection or even annihilation. It's quite interesting to see how we form a healthy sense of ourself. It's formed through relationship. It's formed, we get a healthy sense of ourself through any time someone has shown us kindness. Relationship um, is, is, again, this interrelationship, this interdependence is the fabric of life. It's how we survive. We all need moments of kindness. We all need human affection. And there are some basic things we can be grateful for. On a night like tonight, it's really um, powerful to appreciate this warmth in this room. Just step outside (laughs) and just think about sleeping out there tonight you know, or living out there. These are basic survival things, you know, warmth, education, food, any kind of kindness you've received. Sometimes it's hard for people in the West to think of benefactors. But there are many elders on this planet. One time I saw a picture of a wolf howling, and it was a poster, and it was called Last Song. And at the bottom of the poster it said, can we not learn from our elders? And it's very important to remember that there are many elders. There are wolves. Wolves are 30 million years old. Whales are 50 million years old. Loons have been here for 160 million years. We're, we're, we haven't been here that long, really. And I always try to imagine a retreat without the chickadees or the cockroaches. Some people can imagine the retreat without the cockroaches or the chipmunks or the deer or any of the beings we share this place with or the dogs. It's like, it's unimaginable to me to be here because these really help us um, be in relationship with ourselves, with others. They call us back to ourselves. So there are many elders on this planet. They might not be human, but they really, um, they're part of us. We're part of them. Even if our parents weren't very skillful, if you're alive, someone or some being 
had to have touched your heart or you wouldn't have lived. We need more than food. Our hearts need nourishment. And there's some way in which we had to have been touched or we wouldn't have been able to keep going. If you can think of any being or any human being that has shown you kindness, that has touched your heart, then you're very, very lucky. And, And we can really reflect on this kindness that has kept us going. These are the places where we can touch the experience of gratitude. And this may not be an elder, it might be a dear friend, or a peer, or a chickadee. We really affect each other deeply, the trees, the stars, eagles. Every action, every breath, everything rings through the universe. In one moment, there's no separation or boundary. And sometimes it's hard to express this interconnectedness well, this is, this is from Isaac Dennison from the book Out of Africa. If I know a song of Africa, of the giraffe and the African new moon lying on her back, of the plows in the fields and the sweaty faces of the coffee pickers, does Africa know a song of me? Will the air over the plain quiver with the color that I have had on? Or will the children invent a game in which my name is? Or the full moon throw a shadow over the gravel of the drive that was like me? Or will the eagles of the Ngong Hills, will they look out for me? We can wonder about this interconnectedness. How do we really affect each other? That's what, again, part of the practice is about. There are so many ways that we can practice kindness. There's a whole movement called Practicing Random Acts of Kindness. I was looking at the book called Practicing Random Acts of Kindness recently, and there's a story in it that was quite beautiful. Uh, There was a child with leukemia who was dying, and every once in a while, this child would receive a little package gift-wrapped in the mail. You know, just every so often, um, maybe it would be a little toy or a book or maybe a bigger toy. But each time the child received the gift, it would really lift its spirit and would bring so much happiness through the frustrating, sad times. And after this child died, um, the parents thought that they would find out, finally, who this magic dragon was. It 
they sign their name Magic Dragon with each gift. Um, but the Magic Dragon never let them know who it was. Practicing kindness, spiritual friendship, sharing the Dhamma in whatever way we can. Teaching this retreat is a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to be here with you. There's a kind of sharing and connection that's very deep, and there's no greater privilege than to teach a three-month retreat um, we feel like the luckiest people in the world. And it's hard for you to see sometimes where you are. It's like part of the nature of this long retreat, especially where we are now, is to completely lose perspective. And it's a gift to be able to watch you grow more and more in wisdom and compassion it's like when you come in at this point, it's like you're just filled with teachings for us. And even though you can't see yourself go deeper, we get to watch this incredible journey that you're on and to share it. And we, we all really appreciate that a lot. There are so many people who've done this course in the past 19 years and many of them will write me or call me during this course and say, you know, how's it going? How are they doing? You know, it just makes me so happy to know people are doing this. And most people will express how being here was the most intimate they've ever felt with themselves or felt with life. You know, so it's important to remember that there are many people here with you with this. It's not just you. There are 19 years of people who remember it and who really get support by knowing that you're here doing this. And hopefully you'll feel that support too. There's this interconnectedness. This space of solitude is so rare. Um, I would really enjoy it. <laughs> it's not this quiet out there. And it's a gift that you give to each other, maintaining the silence. It can't be done alone. So there's the person who expresses kindness and the one who is grateful. Whenever we attempt to be intimate with ourselves and with life, many times we get lost. You know, we get identified with wanting. We get identified with not wanting. There'll be a way in which the present moment just isn't enough. And we have to learn to be okay with that. When I moved up to northern Maine, and way back in 1973, I moved up there out of college with 
some of my family and friends way, way out in the woods without any running water or electricity. And we had to walk really far to get to where we lived. And we built the house, and we were living off the land. And my niece, um, who was in fifth grade when we moved up there, did not like this experience at all. She, she wanted to be back in a kind of middle-class home with <laughs> running water. And you know, she wore nylons to school. And by the time they'd, she'd get to school, they'd have runs. And she'd cry. And, um, you know, one time, she just, she just lost it. And she said, I hate it here. I hate, I hate everything. Why did we move up here? And she just was not um, appreciating or having any gratefulness <laughs> for the homesteading experience. So I decided, let's make a list of everything we hate. And we, made, we just made lists, you know, what do you hate? I hate this, I hate this about it, I hate this about it, and we hated this about it, and we just made this huge list. And by the time we finished, we were laughing. You know, it was really fun. Um, <laughs> you know, so we get lost. We get lost. We get identified. And it's okay. You know, those are the times when we can't feel any gratefulness. There are times when you won't feel grateful for being here. Uh, and if you can let those times be okay, the times when you can be grateful will appear quicker than if you fight it. When we can really die to the past and really die to the future, then in that moment where we let go completely, we truly live. That's, it's a very powerful moment of connecting intimately with life. One form of conceit is taking life for granted. And the truth is that we really never know when we're going to die, or when anyone else is going to die. But we're all going to die. Everyone in this room will, everyone on the planet. And we don't know if it's in the next five minutes, or in the next year. The practice um, can really support the awareness that death can happen at any time. And it's arrogant to not be aware of that. It's really not being connected with the truth of things. And I find that the more we can accept that the truth that we never know when death is going to happen, the more and more we appreciate the preciousness of life in the moment. And to realize that to be here, just to be here, with whatever's happening is a blessing. Just to live is to be holy. Intimacy, intimacy with life, of course, implies intimacy with death. In some ways, um, they're so interrelated. This is a, from a new book called The Vietnam in Me by Tim O'Brien about his experience in Vietnam. I try to explain, ineptly no doubt, that Vietnam was more than terror. 
for me at least, Vietnam was partly love. With each step, each light year of a second, a foot soldier is always almost dead, or so it feels. And in such circumstances, you can't help but love. You love your mom and dad, the Vikings, hamburgers on the grill, your, your pulse, your future, everything that might be lost or never come to be. Intimacy with death carries with it a corresponding new intimacy with life. Jokes are funnier. Green is greener. You love the misty morning air. You love the miracle of your own enduring capacity for love. You love your friends in Alpha Company, a kid named Chip, my buddy. He wrote letters to my sister. I wrote letters to his sister. In the rear, back at Gator, Chip and I would go our separate ways by color, both of us ashamed but knowing it had to be that way. In the bush, though, nothing kept us apart. Black and white, we were called. In May of 69, Chip was blown high into a hedge of bamboo, many pieces. I love the guy. He loved me. I'm alive. He's dead. An old story, I guess. Vietnam. This is a very healing book, being able to open to that whole range of life and death. When we can't accept change, when we can't accept death, life becomes more and more like a rock. The more we can accept change, the more we can accept birth and death, the more our life flows, the more our attention is like water. When Upandita was here, in 89, 1989, he did a long series of talks that I couldn't understand why he was doing them on what he called patiginas. He said there are two kinds of unenlightened human beings. Uh, patiginas <clears throat> are the uh, ones that aren't searching for understanding. And he, he said that the Buddha said that not to search for understanding is like being mad, like being crazy. And the other kind of unenlightened human being is a Kalyana, a truly magnanimous person, one who is searching for understanding and is developing wisdom. If I remember a Pali word, it means that Upandita repeated it many, many times. <laughs> And patiginous, I love that word, um, <laughs> because it's, it's so um, deep in terms of understanding the need for us to develop understanding and to really look at what does it take us to wake up. 
know, what, what is it that motivates us to really search for understanding and not be so crazy in this world. And for me, when my mother died when I was 13, I remember touching her body and it was really cold. And it was the coldness of her body that was like an electric shock that really woke me up for my life. You know, it, it really hit me hard. And right after my mother died, I was in pretty bad shape, but I didn't know it. Um, and it, when I look back, there was such denial in my family and around me. Like, no one ever said to me, you know, I'm sorry your mother died, or ever put my, their hands on me and said, you know, boy, this could maybe a little be hard. It was like completely nothing was said. Um, but this woman, who I didn't know well at the time, who lived across the street from me, gave me the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And I don't know if you know the book, but it's about a person searching for understanding, searching for the truth. And in the story, he meets the Buddha and eventually spends time living by a stream. The river becomes his teacher. He learns to listen to the river, which is water. Um, And he learns to open to whatever comes down the river in his life as his teacher. He learns to be humble and open to whatever happens in the moment and wake up. I felt that this... um, reaching out and giving me this gift of trying to help me understand death, even though it seems almost impossible to understand. And she really gave me this gift of supporting me in this desire to understand. This is what a spiritual friend is, somebody who can mirror to us in this part of ourself that wants to wake up, that really truly wants to understand what is this? What is death? You know, what is this that is happening to everyone that lives? The Dalai Lama said that I believe no one is born free of the need for love. We have a great sensitivity for kindness. We have a great need for kindness. And I'd like to read from the prison letters of George Jackson. It's called uh, From Soldad Brother. George Jackson spent 10 years in prison. He spent seven years in solitary. And he was killed by a prison guard in Attica. And this is about our need for kindness and what happens when we're deprived of it. The significant feature of the desperate man reveals itself when he meets other desperate men. And he experiences his first kindness. Someone to strain with him, 
to strain to see him as he strains to see himself. Someone to understand, someone to accept the regard, the love that desperation forces into hiding. Those feelings that find no expression in desperate times store themselves up in great abundance. They ripen, they strengthen, and strain the walls of their repository to the utmost. Where the kindred spirit touches this wall, it crumbles. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than the desperate man. Our survival depends on kindness, being kind, and then appreciating the kindness that's shown to us. When we do have a conditioning of not receiving kindness, whether it's the abandonment of the child's heart or an abandonment of the adult's heart, What happens when we lack the kindness is that there's this feeling of disconnection to the point where it can be like a black hole of feeling totally unlovable or totally unwanted. And this is very difficult to open to. But if you look at what heals it, it's what heals it is kindness. It's really making a connection. Whether we make a connection with a chickadee eating birdseed out of our hand and feeling that connection with life, or whether we feel a connection with a human being, what melts this disconnection is a sense of being touched by life, being our heart being able to, instead of being clenched shut, open again and be able to receive this connection with life we really can't make it as a species or as a planet without appreciating relationship, without appreciating this incredible dependence that we have on kindness. The ability to appreciate the kindness um, is very deep. And it, it, it's very inclusive. It includes all of life. Ultimately, the gratitude includes life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And of course, you can see the relationship between understanding and the experience of gratitude because you know, the more we develop this openness to the fullness of life, this range of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, this range of joy and sorrow, the more we can experience gratitude or thankfulness. I remember when my nephew, who is like a son to me, and I raised him when he was growing up. 
was in the Persian Gulf War. I used to send him letters with um, songs that I used to sing him before he would go to sleep at night, um, just in case he didn't come back. And the day that he flew back into L.A. after being there, um, when he was a Marine there, I had gone through a lot trying to open to this experience of kind of waiting to see what would happen. In my mind, the worst scenario was that he would come back from being in the war totally shut down and closed. And then another worst scenario for me was that he had, would have liked it. And I would go back and forth between, you know, being really terrified he had liked it or really being terrified that he'd been totally shut down. Uh, and it was quite interesting, just those, you know, days of waiting and, and then finally getting to see him. Uh, and he was with his girlfriend. His girlfriend and I met him at the airport. And I remember seeing these little tears coming down his eyes when he saw me. And I knew that he hadn't shut down, but I could see that he'd been shattered by the experience, like totally shattered. You know, and, and any time I would see him, he was shaking all over. Um, and it was quite hard for me to open to what had happened to him, but it was the best scenario. You know, he really woke up to what life was all about. He really woke up to what had happened there. He really woke up to the fact that he never wanted to kill. Um, and I thought a lot about, from that experience of watching what he'd been through, again, what does it take us to wake up? What does it take us to open? You know, it took for me, it took for me my mother's cold body. It took for him being in the war. You know, what is it for you? What is it that really motivates us to search, to understand? And it's really a search to find connection to find, you know, this openness of heart where we can truly appreciate our life. The spiritual life is very vast. You know, we talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. We talk about the armies of Mara, the hindrances. Um, at this point in the retreat, we can have a feeling that there's something that we want to get and that we better get it quick or we're not going to get it. Um, and I would encourage you to be careful of having some idea that you're going to get something and then feel finished and that it's going to be over. Um, 
it's kind of a small view of the spiritual life. There's so much in it in terms of the vastness of even if you focused on kindness or even if you focused on sila or even if you focused on equanimity or forgiveness or gratitude, there's so much in it. I really wouldn't limit it to some little, you know, experience that you're waiting for. It's just, it's, that's too small. I would hope you don't hold out for something like that. It's much greater than us, the practice. Um, and if we keep them attention like water, that there's this humility that, like Siddhartha, he learned just to be humble and receive whatever teachings were coming downstream in his life. And that's what liberated him. That's all you have to do. Each of us here, there's a stream of teachings that's coming daily. Uh, and it's your teachings. They might not be the teachings you thought you were going to get. Um, but that's what's going to liberate you, to open to what it is that for you is happening. And hold out for all of it. Don't hold out for a small, small few moments of the retreat that you'll call it. It really isn't enough. So what I wanted to talk about tonight was really um, encouraging you to reflect on thankfulness and how it affects your heart and the ways that we can develop this reflection is to reflect on anyone who's shown us kindness. We can reflect on spiritual friends, anything that has helped us keep going when it's dark. We can reflect on death, that it can happen at any moment. To help a person return to a relationship of harmony to themselves and to all beings in the universe. So it's a little long, but it's a nice way to go into Thanksgiving. This is from the Navajo. House made of dawn. You can think of house as your awareness or your heart. House made of dawn. House made of evening light. House made of the dark cloud. House made of male rain, house made of dark mist, house made of female rain, house made of pollen, house made of grasshoppers. Dark cloud is at the door. The trail out of it is dark cloud. The zigzag lightning stands high upon it, an offering I make. Restore my feet for me. Restore my legs for me. Restore my body for me. Restore my mind for me. 
Restore my voice for me. Happily, I recover. Happily, I go forth. My interior feeling cool, may I walk. No longer sore, may I walk. Impervious to pain, may I walk. With lively feelings, may I walk. As it used to be long ago, may I walk. Happily, may I walk. Happily, with abundant dark clouds, may I walk. Happily, with abundant showers, may I walk. Happily, may I walk. May it be beautiful before me. May it be beautiful behind me. May it be beautiful below me. May it be beautiful above me. May it be beautiful all around me. In beauty, it is finished. In beauty, it is finished. Happily may we walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.